Welcome to Wrestling and Everything Coast to Coast with your hosts, Buddy Satello Esquire and Evan Ginsberg, with special guest today, Mike Leno. And Mike, would you like to introduce our guest, our other special guest that we have for today? Well, hopefully I'm going to cringe uh, as, as a regular with Jeff. Jeff Winningham is not a wrestling full-time person. He's an acclaimed, globally awarded uh, photographer, photojournalist, author of some, Jeff, is it like 15, 16 books? Something Four, like 14. 14. And the wrestling book he produced uh, from, I guess it was, uh, and he can correct me on anything uh, that I'm incorrect on, in the, uh, it was, I think it was 1971 through 72 for six months, he shot at Paul Bosch's primary venue, the Houston Coliseum. The book is called Friday Night at the Coliseum. And the style, uh, the artistry, uh, all of the personality and he put into this with the world-class wrestlers that anybody in sports would know. Johnny Valentine, Ernie Ladd, who was a former great NFL player, Neil Moskris, who's still alive and actually still wrestling. Um, gosh, there's so many guys. Professor Toru Tanaka, who main evented a zillion times at Madison Square Garden. He's in it. The Kozak brothers, uh, Chris Markoff, just uh, Stan the Man Stasiak, who was the Tri-WF World Champion between Pedro Morales and Bruno's second reign. Uh, all of these guys and many, many, many more, including the fans, a unique perspective. That's what drew him to this project was the sort of carnival atmosphere of the fans. But in the process, he didn't know what he was doing, but he was setting a template for all of us as professional magazine photographers around the world. I've discussed his book since I brought him aboard with me on COVIDCon a couple of months ago with Koichi Yoshizawa of Japan. And he influenced all of us, George Napolitano, Frank Amato, so many others, Gene Gordon. And, uh, you know, I, I'm going to call this segment um, Falling for Books because, you know, you do take falls and bumps in wrestling. It's fall. And this is a book that was so out of print. And people were, you know, putting it, their copies because when they were gone, they were gone uh, in the uh, early 70s. And people have been putting it online. I've actually seen as high as six fifty, but Jeff had seen I think four hundred fifty dollars, four hundred seventy five for a nineteen seventy three edition. He's put out a, a, a series. He's redone it, same exact book, but added more pages, more content, and photos. Has some specials. Um, so Jeff, let me have you tell us about the book. And you know, most of the other things I've seen you photograph are um, they're, they're non sports. Well, I've done a fair number of sports. The, the next project I did after wrestling was uh, high school football. And, and I've done a fair amount of photography of, of basketball. I did a project with the Houston Rockets. I love sports. And I love to photograph sports. But, you know, what drew me to wrestling, uh, I, I kind of backed into a... In 1971, I was newly back in Houston from Chicago, and I just fell in love with the city, uh, its, its diversity, its energy. Um, it was a growing, thriving, fabulous place to be a photographer. And I had a new hero. I don't know if any of you have ever seen or know of the photographer Ouija, who okay. was probably the greatest spot news photographer of all time. And I fell in love with Ouija. Ouija's beat was New York City in the 30s. And I wanted to be 
Houston's Ouija. So where I just wherever there was a cl- a crowd, I figured there'd be some good pictures there. So I started looking for any place that anything happening that would draw a crowd, parades, big parties, um, sporting events. And one Friday afternoon, I was reading the paper and. Uh, there was a small ad there saying the Golf Athletic Club. That was Paul's uh, promotion. Golf Athletic Club is uh, presenting a series of wrestling matches in the Houston Coliseum tonight. Tickets available. And I thought, whoa, I bet there'd be some good crowds down there. So I called. Uh, and um, at the time, and still today, I'm a teacher. I teach at Rice University. And so I, I kind of threw my academic position out there and said, I, I, I teach at Rice University and I would love to come and make some photographs of the wrestling. Would that be possible? And from that moment, Paul Bosch just uh, not only welcomed me, he opened every door for me. He helped me in every way he possibly could. So when I arrived that night, he said, you know, look for me. I'll be by, by the ring uh, announcing and, and find me and I'll, I'll help you. So I walked in that first Friday night and um, it was like heaven to me. I mean, as a photographer, the sound, um, the crowd was just, you know, frantic and crazy and wild. And some were cheering and some were booing and big men were flying through the air with sweat flying off of them and grabbing each other and putting themselves in torturous holes. It was, it was crazy, you know. So I just um, I just fell into it. I mean, I fell in love with it. And I had Bosch, who was saying, yeah, you want to get in the ring? Get in the ring. I mean, be careful, but, I mean, get out of there before they get going. But if you need to get in there to get a picture, go ahead. And You want to go in the dressing room? Uh, so, um, you know, he enabled me um, from beginning to end. And we, he was, you know, a prince of a man. I don't know anybody in the city of Houston that had a more sterling reputation than Paul Bosch. Everybody knew him as a gentleman. And the way he treated me was uh, consistent with that reputation. So, you know, very quickly, I I say very quickly, within a month or two of going on Friday nights, I arrived at kind of my own perspective on it, which was that this is a glorious kind of folk theater. This is every man's athletic theater, okay, where the matches uh, not only entertain you, uh, cause you to have passionate reactions to it, they sometimes bring catharsis and relief, and they sometimes bring, you know, anger till the thing can get resolved the next week. But it was a case where I felt these people coming out of a need for theater, a need for um, all the things that theater brings, as I've already mentioned, you know, passion, release, catharsis. Um, and and Paul started announcing me on the, the matches were on Friday night. He would record everything except the main event and show it on Sunday morning. So Sunday morning I could tune in and see the matches on TV, which were, for me, not nearly as interesting. But there there I was on TV. You know, pretty soon I was <laughs> the professor of wrestling. 
out there recording uh, the matches for posterity. So that made the crowd love me. Um, and I would go and be, you know, I'd get there at 4.30 in the afternoon. The matches didn't start till 7.30. But I'd get there with the earliest fans, have a little fried chicken and iced tea with them and sit around and talk about the matches. And, you know, it was a lot like theater and a little bit like church. Because, because the, the crowd was like a congregation. Uh, and I just loved it. I, it. Finally, the other thing was that I felt that I had discovered, still feel that I discovered, right under my own nose, this terrific, relatively undiscovered subject. Now, I know there were 7,000 people a week that were going there, so it wasn't totally undiscovered. But I had never thought of going to a wrestling match. I didn't know anybody that went to the wrestling matches on Friday night. And so I felt like I had discovered this fabulously rich subject right under my nose and that I needed to describe it as I saw it and put those pictures out there and let people understand they were missing something fantastic. Jeff, I'm going to pitch to Evan in one sec. I don't mean to interrupt, but I want to let everybody know we're talking to wrestling well wrestling author photographer genius jeff winningham w-i-n-n-i-n-g-h-a-m the book is called friday night at the coliseum meaning the houston coliseum um ev i, I want to pitch to you because you came up with a title very similar and and paul bosch actually called him both to the fans over the mic and the boys in the back, the professor of wrestling, because he was a professor at Rice University. So, Ev, what did, what did you call wrestling the proletariats? What, yes, what? yes. Uh, you, you read my mind. My, my radio mentor, Fred Giobold, referred to wrestling as the proletarian performance art, theater for the people, very simple, good versus evil, and like Jeff said, a catharsis when the good guy wins, you know, uh, rage when the bad guy wins. And, and it works. It's always worked. And I think it works less today because, you know, it's not as clear cut who's the good guy, who's the bad guy. And uh, back in the 70s, it was very clear, you know, this guy's the face, this guy's the heel. And uh, I think it worked better back in the day. Right, Mike? Yeah, it certainly did when you had uh, guys like that. It, it's so interesting, though, to see, to look at, and this is something, and uh, Jeff, uh, Evan is in New York, Buddy Sotelo there in the middle, are, and he's where I used to live in Northern California. He's up there near where the worst of the fires are, and I'm in Southern Cal. But um, Professor, when you look at like the photos, like uh, Mosker's diving onto Professor Taru Tanaka, um, Jeff's pictures, why we talked about them so much, had him bringing this Diane Arbus artistic sense. And, and on another interview on COVIDCon, I talked about some of Jeff's pictures of the fans reminding me totally of Diane Arbus's uh, treatment of, of people that were a little bit different. And that's what we all saw at, at wrestling. So I kind of wish Jeff had then kept with wrestling and done Friday night in Atlanta and Friday night in, in yeah. Los Angeles, Friday at the Olympic Auditorium and Monday at Madison Square Garden and gone to different venues because he would have gotten, uh, he would have seen what we got to see, the total differences in the crowds. Houston and Dallas 
it felt like a county fair. Jeff, have you shot a lot of carnivals and county fairs to get your the same rush I had in, in photographing people that um, are a little I, bit different? I did uh, a lot of county fairs and kind of local celebrations. You know, I went everywhere from, you know, the uh, the uh, um, the watermelon thump in Luling, Texas, to the Peanut Festival in Athens, Texas. I love small town kind of county festivals, which were often connected with the county fair. So I did some of that. But, you know, I want to mention two other things early to throw out there to talk about in terms of what I loved about it, what I still love when I look back at the photographs of that wrestling. People look at my photographs now, like I hung a show in March when the book came out. I had a big show here in Houston and there was a fair sized crowd at the opening. And the comment that I got most often, very, very interesting was, wow, this crowd is so diverse. Look, there's blacks, there's Latino people, there's whites, there's Asians. They're all there sitting side by side in the crowd. And I don't know whether um, pro wrestling now has that quality. I don't know of any event, however, I will say in Houston that draws such a diverse crowd. And it did then. And then the other thing I want to say is that the fact that the wrestlers came right through the crowd when they approached the ring and when they left the ring, and they could even be found often outside the dressing rooms, uh, signing autographs or whatever. So there was this contact, this immediate contact between the crowd and these heroes or villains who were performing. Uh, one of the things I edited more into the second edition of the book is more pictures of people touching, reaching out to touch the wrestlers as they come through. And I think it's just I got one photograph of, of Tim Woods leaving the ring. He's walking away from the camera. You only see his back. But there are, I don't know, eight or ten hands. There's a black arm. There's a white arm. There's a, they're all reaching to touch him. And there's one girl just in front of me. You can see the back of her head. She looks to be 10 or 12 years old. And she's reaching out. And she's touching him on the butt. <laughs> <laughs> that immediacy between the performers, between the wrestlers and the crowd, do we st somebody told me that now they have barriers up so that you can't get right next to the ring. But can you still touch the wrestlers as they come through the crowd? Uh, it depends on the promotion, some of them. And, and that's why I've been trying to nag you to go to uh, Indies, like in Houston, Booker T's school yeah. and promotion. I don't think they have barriers, so it's more like the good old days that were. Yeah, of course. One one time, me and Vinny Massaro in Pacifica were walking to the ring, and uh, a fan took a thermos full of hot coffee and dumped it all over Vinny. So oh, nice. yeah, there's something to be said sometimes about having a little distance between yourself and the fans. Now, buddy, uh, you were a, a bad guy heel manager for. Law of many great talents in my neck of the woods that you know I've probably shot all of their first matches like Vinny or uh, oh gosh what was our our friend probably the most famous guy you managed who was working uh, for Misawa in the uh, Bison Mark Mark right. Bison Smith yeah, yes who passed away 
Um, had you ever uh, gotten slapped on the back or hit by fans to where... I avoided them like the plague, and I always used my wrestlers as a shield between them and myself. I was always very careful to make sure that, especially the people that looked like they could get physical. But you remember Mark Smith. He was about the size of a doorway. And so, like, as soon as someone would come close to me, Mark Smith would turn around and bark at them. And he was wearing a mask at the time, and he was a very intimidating guy, even though he was a real pussycat in, in real life. But when he would have that mask on, he would get into that personality of Super Destroyer 2000. And nobody wanted to come close to us, except in Vallejo. There were two guys who dressed up like the insane clown posse. And they would get right in Mark Smith's face. And Mark Smith was ready to go out into the parking lot and take those two guys out. He was that. And he was a guy that would never do something like that. But... Those guys got under his skin. Every time we do a Vallejo show, we go, oh, my God, are the Insane Clown Posse guys there in the audience? And there they were, front, front row, every time. And we're like, oh, we're going to have to deal with this. Everybody in the show hated those two, but Mark really wanted to take them out and just crush their heads together. I'm like, no, that's going to be a lawsuit. We don't want to do that. But, man, they really got under his skin. So fans can sometimes go a little bit too far, even though it's nice they have some some real close contact sometimes with, with them. I always signed autographs for anybody that ever wanted them. So, so including the one that threw coffee on Vinny. You know, that. I'm going to throw back to Ev. Uh, we're talking, of course, to Jeff Winningham, the book, uh, Friday Night at the Coliseum. And, uh, Ev, one picture in there, and I know you would love it, uh, that I talked with him uh, when we were on COVIDCon about Jeff was he has a photograph of a doctor. I think he's, uh, I'm doing this from memory, checking the blood pressure and, you know, before he'll sign off and, and allow uh, Nick Kozak to go out and wrestle. But it's an African-American doctor. And this is 1971. Evan. You know, we still were seeing Jim Crow stuff in, in various places I was shooting. Um, so any, any thoughts on that, Ev, or... The, the fact that you had a real true melting pot, which is heartwarming to hear about, even then, as far back as then. Yeah. Well, I found it interesting what um, Jeff said about, you know, wrestling fans really um, don't see color. I mean, if the guy's a face, they root for him. If a guy's a heel, they root against them. And uh, I think that's one of the beautiful things about rest. And... Um, I'd like to ask Jeff about some of the personalities he met, because so many of those legends are gone now. I sure. mean, I grew up in New York on Mil Mascaris and Professor Tanaka. What were your interactions like with some of these giants? Well, again, you know, uh, it was Paul Bosch that enabled me to um, interact with them in kind of any way that I want. I was interested in talking to them because I knew that I wanted to combine uh, kind of interview material, conversations with the wrestlers and with the fans. I knew I wanted to combine that with the photographs. Um, and so I, I, as I would ask Marcia, uh, um, can you give me a phone number or put me in touch with Wahoo, uh, Johnny Valentine, uh, Nick Kozak, and you know, one by one, they were all available to me. I mean, I guess the one that was available to me with the least enthusiasm probably was Ernie Ladd. I remember when the book came out, I had a book signing 
at a bookstore here in Houston. Bosch knew that was coming up and he called me up and he said, would you like some wrestlers to be there? I said, well, yeah, sure I would. And, you know, so he sent like six, eight guys. It was a Friday afternoon. They were going to wrestle, I guess, that Friday night. Uh, the book signing was like four to six. And, you know, in walks Ernie Ladd. In walks Johnny Valentine. Mm. Um, and they signed books. There are a few of those books that were signed by all those wrestlers still around. I don't have one. But uh, they must have signed, I don't know. 30 or 40 books that afternoon, all of them. So what I'm getting around to is that when they were starting to leave, Ernie Ladd was walking to the door and I walked up to him, you know, looked straight up at his, you know, he's about three feet taller than me. And I said, uh, I really appreciate you coming. Thank you very much. And he looked down at me and said, it's okay. Whatever Bosch asked me to do, I do it. <laughs> That's a testament to Paul Bosch. One thing, Jeff, I never, I haven't told you this, I don't believe, but um, Paul Bosch, I, I have told you how respected and beloved, you know, one of the few honest promoters, as yeah, Evan yeah. and Russ Buddy know, in that time period when there were still the territories, there was Giant Baba, there was Paul Bosch, Sam Munchnik, uh, Eddie Graham to a certain level, and Tunney up in Toronto, and then all the rest of them, including my two home base bosses, LaBelle in LA, Roy Shire in San Francisco, um, did not have sterling reputations. Paul Bosch did. He and Lord Tallyho Bleers, another wrestler, because Paul Bosch not only had a fantastic wrestling career, but he was a war hero, a World War II hero, as you, I'm sure you know. Yeah, but yeah. he and Lord Tallyho Bleers, when they were all living, I think in the 40s in Long Beach, New York, introduced Helen and Stu Hart. Uh, Stu Hart, of course, the legendary hooker shooter, grappling wrestler who with the Stampede promotion in Calgary, he had all those sons and son-in-laws were all wrestlers, one of the biggest families in the biz. And Paul Bosch was the primary guy of the two to introduce those two total, to that's in wrestling lore. And that's a, a guy that was, you know, even in the seventies and when you got interested in it uh, a little bit after me, I think you knew that Paul Bosch was one of those class A, if not the most beloved promoter for being honest, for paying the boys often, not just what he promised them, but sometimes more. You know, he was honest and would say, oh, we drew a bigger house than expected. I'm giving this wrestler more. You didn't hear about that with anybody. Just yes. Paul Bosch. Yeah, Sam Mutchnick had a great reputation also. And uh, Vince McMahon Sr., you know, was business on a handshake. Whatever he promised you, he gave you from what I from what I always heard, um, but yeah, to give bonuses, that's a little unusual in pro wrestling. So. I think I mean but more beloved, you know, everybody knew Vince McMahon Sr. was a big deal, but they may not have loved him the way they loved Paul Bosch. I mean, Paul Bosch was right. built up by the audience, the fans, the boys, meaning the talent, the wrestlers, other promoters. He had global respect, probably only Giant Baba, Shohei Baba, uh, who promoted All Japan, and Paul Bosch were the ones that were just beloved by everybody. Nobody would ever have an unkind word to say about Paul Bosch or his widow, uh, Valerie, who we lost a couple of months ago, who I wrote about, a very, very sweet lady taking care of their... Uh, and Ev may not know this, neither of you guys may not know this. I know I went on and on about it with Jeff. Um, their son, Joey Bosch, is what they... You know, the term is a savant, 
he's nearly totally deaf, completely blind, but he could hear a song and immediately, you know, play a complex Tchaikovsky song or a Beatles, you know, just hearing it. And he could play it after one listening when, you know, his hearing was not there at all. It just, wow. and he couldn't really, he's still alive. Sadly, I hope there's good family members taking care of him, but his speaking voice, you know, wasn't super clear, but when he sang, it was like Mel Tillis, the country star. You wouldn't hear him stuttering or anything. He had a perfect voice, and that's, uh, you know, he's a musical genius. So I guess he got some genius uh, genes from Paul and, and Val. Hmm. Interesting. So, Jeff, I, I have a question for you. Sure. And I always ask this. Uh, I ask this of my Mike, and 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 I ask this of other folks that are, because I also love wrestling photography myself. I was uh, Mike's quote-unquote, photographic assistant on a couple of shows. And um, uh, I want to know, what makes a great wrestling photograph? Well, um, I'm not sure I can answer that. I mean, what makes a great photograph? Uh, How is a wrestling photograph, a great wrestling photograph, different than any other great photograph? Maybe because you have some... Uh, exceptional moment you have captured. It might be a, a great wrestling photograph if you capture, you know, a, a moment in wrestling history um, that uh, is important for that moment. But in general, I would say a great wrestling photograph for me, and, and you know, I, it's just me. I haven't studied all the wrestling photographs. But my feeling is it's the same qualities that make any other photograph great. And the first quality is surprise. You know that when you look at any great photograph, for me at least, there's this moment of like arrest, an instant where you go, wow, I didn't know anything could look like that as a photograph. You know, I think, for example, there's a I told you one of my heroes is Ouija, the news photographer. There's a photograph he made, Coney Island in 1940. And it's, he's up on, a, uh, up on a lifeguard platform. And the crowd that day at Coney Island was estimated at a million people. And he's got a photograph up there that shows the crowd. I mean, you can't count them, but you can believe it would be a million people. And they're all looking at him and they're kind of screaming and shouting. And when I look at that photograph, even for the thousandth time I look at it, I go, whoa, God, how did he get all those people? in one? So, you know, uh, that quality of surprise, which can be very um, overt or can be very subtle. Sometimes you catch a detail in the photograph only after a few minutes or so of looking at it, you think, oh, look at that now. You know, so sometimes it surprises you secondarily. But I do believe that that's the same quality we look for kind of in music or in dance, you know, that we want to be surprised and delighted. I didn't know it could look like that, you know. Beyond that, I think it gets kind of hard. You can say, you know, what is the ele- what are the elements of composition that make a great photograph? I don't think that's sayable. I think that that is something um, that is renewed every time we see 
a really wonderful photograph. I don't think there are any rules of composition. Uh, timing is a huge part of a great photograph. You could almost say it's, in, in terms of sports and wrestling, it's maybe the most important that we can catch an instant where two people are simultaneously off the ground as they grapple or whatever, you know, timing. But that, but that's timing is leading to surprise. You know, so I, I, I hold to my theory that the one great element, the one important element in all great photographs is one form or another of surprise. Yeah. That's my theory. I'm kind of sticking That's with That's excellent. It. That is that is just yeah, the sort of thing. Say, let me just say this, and then I'll throw back to you guys. And I'm sorry I'm interrupting, but I we a lot of us have called him, me in particular, the Alfred Eisenstadt of wrestling photographers. Even though his world was far, far beyond wrestling, wrestling was only a small part for this historic book. But for, looking at Jeff's photos, they elicited emotion. Uh, I know, for example, Evan has probably seen a million Mil Moscars flying off the top rope, flying body press shots. But Jeff shot the ultimate. You'll never see a better one, uh, his placement, because Paul Bosch allowed him that freedom if he wanted to be up on top of the ring. None of us had done that. We did that later. We tried copying the skills that we learned through Jeff's book in the 70s and tried mimicking that. But he did the ultimate. The other thing, so besides emotion and telling a story, you can look through this book at, at, at like the cover shot with Johnny Valentine victorious over uh, Bronco Lubitsch, who later became a famous ref, and his manager Homer Odell and Chris Markoff. And you, it tells the complete story, just one photo. Whereas a lot of us, I have to shoot like, you know, I, I shoot a match like a story from the very beginning, the entrances of both to the very end when they go to the back. But Jeff had this quality in his photos. One photo often told the entire story of the, the match, which is nearly impossible to do. Or Ev2, he's got, I forgot about this, some Dory Funk Jr. title matches, I believe, with Wahoo McDaniel, who I forgot to mention earlier as a subject in, throughout his book. And, um, and then I think Tim Woods, Mr. Russing, who was one of the greatest amateur wrestlers turn pro we've ever seen in the business, you know, underneath Kurt Angle. Mike, let me, let me add something to what you just said. You talked about my picture of uh, Mio Moskers coming off the, uh, the post there. Uh, I, I can't remember if I mentioned to you this in our first call or not, but this is a case where Bosch really helped me. I mean, he was not only letting me go wherever I want, but in that match, I was close to him, maybe five or six feet away, as I remember, on one side of the ring, as that match was coming to a conclusion. And this is the only time Bosch ever did anything like this for me that I recall. But at some point, he leaned over, kind of nudged me, and pointed to the corner of the ring and kind of gestured with his hands like, you know, go down to that corner of the ring. And I looked at him, not first understanding he and he kept doing it, go down to that corner of the ring. And I did. And it was from that corner of the ring that I had the perfect angle on Muskrat flying through the air toward Tanaka. So, you know. <laughs> if you would have stuck around, which I wish you would have stuck around to current, you, that was the only thing you didn't have is knowing when they start climbing up there, what's coming next. And that's what Bosch knew. So he knew to direct you to there because you'd have that vantage point. And so now when I'm in the photographer's scrum, 
sometimes lucky enough to be by myself, I know, okay, in about five seconds, the guy's going to do a dive. I'm going to go over there. I don't want to miss the shot. And that's, we never want to miss a, a high spot. And that's what Moskers was doing, the dive, the body press off the top rope, a, a high spot. And uh, had you stayed as I truly wish you had, and, and maybe we can get you to, to come back. Uh, there are other Phoenix birds that have come back, uh, you know, being away from wrestling for a long time. And uh, it's second nature like a bike, mainly because maybe it's a, sort of a visceral thing to shoot as opposed to animals or historic people. I'll, I'll shut up now. You guys. Did you tell me, Mike, that, that you know, Muskers is still wrestling in California? I, I've shot him a couple times in Mexico. And when these promoters bring up these legends of Lucha Libre, that word means Mexican professional wrestling. But now he has to. I've been with him in the back. Uh, because for his book, he wants me to be the lead photographer for it when he finally retires. But he's still wrestling, but he's dropped like about 100 pounds of body mass, uh, even more th since the last time Evan saw him. So he's padding up and putting on like three layers of sweatsuit and then a zip up, like an old school 70s ring jacket thing and, and long, long johns to hide his legs because he's lost. You know, when you're in your 70s, I think he's like 77 now, Wow! which is, it's rough to see him feel like he has to do that. So he looks like Moscris. And then in the match, luckily they put him in six or eight mans, you know, with guys that are a little younger to cover for him. But he tried running the ropes and it was like walking. Yeah, but I'm not even exaggerating. Meltzer was there that night and saw it too. And he go, oh boy, Meltzer wrote, he should, you know, retire now because he's kind of doing a disservice to his legend. Well, I'll tell you, as a guy that's 77 myself, I think there's a great subject there for a documentary film or photo essay. You know, this magnificent man, you know, who flew off of ropes and and wrestled with such power and elegance and verve, you know, uh, still in the ring at his age uh, and performing. I mean, that's got to be there's got to be a great story there. Well, there is, too, because the boys in the back still give him a hard time, A, for not selling for them. And, and you know, like he, he would expect the other guys to sell for him and act like they've been killed. But he never has reciprocated it. And it's only gotten worse in his old age. And, uh, and I mean, I love the guy. I can't say a bad word about him. But he also, um, any of us who would drive him to the venues, he put the mask on like 15 miles or 25 miles before we got to the venue and he would never take it off in the shower around the other boys in the locker room you know to, to where they the mask comes off the minute they go to the back these super famous wrestlers Rey Mysterio, Juventud Guerrero, uh, Rayo de Jalisco you know any of them um, Psychosis etc uh, Santo Jr. still wrestling but they give it to him because even when they'll go out to eat, the showering is the main thing. Like the mask has to stay on when he showers, and nobody yes. does that. He's still protecting his gimmick, Ev. You know that. Did yeah. I tell you about the one time he spoke to me? Yeah, you told me that one uh, too. You were kind of frightened of him, but he's like the sweetest guy in the world. I, I can't be an Ernie Lad. I would be afraid of because he was uh, when he was a heel. And oddly, Ev, that was one of the few places he was a babyface in in Houston, because that was his, you know, where he born, raised, and, 
I think he played football there for the Oilers, was it? But uh, Jeff, tell us about the the Moskers thing. He he kind of scared you. Well, Paul would do his interviews on a TV stand. He had an elevated stand, you know, with the big television cameras, and he would put people in front of a backdrop and interview them. And there would be, you know, at any given time, maybe a dozen people on the stand, either ready to be interviewed or technicians or whatever. So I was up there one night um, photographing Paul as he was interviewing someone. And I became aware, and we're mostly in the dark. The lights are on the people being interviewed, and the rest of the stand is kind of in the dark. And at some point, I became aware that there was somebody very big, very close behind me, almost like over my shoulder. And I kind of looked a little bit, and damn, it was it was Mil Mascaris. And he was like three feet behind me, and, you know, again, like two feet taller than me. And, you know, I was kind of a little bit, nervous and wondering why is he standing and then I noticed he moved closer to me and at one point I realized he was like inches from my shoulder and I kind of then turned and looked over my shoulder and he spoke to me and he said I shoot Nikon He wanted to know what kind of camera I was shooting with. <laughs> and we struck up a little conversation about that. So it took all of the edge of fear off of him, you know. But uh, he was a scary guy, particularly in the near dark, you know. <laughs> I, I'd, like, I'd like to ask you guys, um, in New York City, we had an iconic moment when Jimmy Snooker jumped off the cage on Morocco and thousands of flash cubes went off and it was very dramatic and the building just shook. Is, are there any iconic moments that either of you as photographers remember like that? Because for me, it's like vivid and it's, you know, decades ago. Jeff, I, I should uh, throw to you. Let me just throw this in because Jeff doesn't know this. Mosker started in 62. The Neil Mosker's character, like Jushin Thunder Liger, was originally a Mexican comic book superhero. And they had one guy who started playing it just very briefly. It didn't work out. And then they got uh, Miguelito Aaron Rodriguez, Neil Moskers, to do it. And he's been doing it since 1962, Jeff. Wow. wow. Uh, to answer your question, I don't know that I witnessed any uh, momentous events quite like that. I mean, you know, every main event had some sort of dramatic moment in it. But, but I've got to tell you about what I do have in my book long before my time that people just love. In 1944, there was a joint performance, and I have the photograph, a couple of photographs of it in the book. There was a joint performance of the Houston Wrestling Promotions and the Houston Symphony Orchestra. And the winner of the match got to conduct the orchestra. Oh. Wow. Who won? So, huh? Who won? Uh, you know, his, uh, let me look. I don't think I have his name there. I don't think I had his name. Um, but I can't. the Butcher. Yeah. <laughs> what year was that, Jeff? 44? Uh, give, let me, give me a second. I'll be accurate. I'll just tell you instead of guessing. I've never heard anything like that, Evan. I heard of the uh, Oakland A's every year. Uh, manager Tony LaRussa and some of the athletes like uh, Reggie Jackson, you know, early on would perform the, at the Christmas Nutcracker. They would they'd actually have the Oakland A's 
uh, join the, the professional cast. We've never heard wrestlers doing something. 1944, and it was Ellis Bashara. Can you can you see this if I hold it up with it? Wow. Uh, wow, yes. He's conducting the orchestra. Unbelievable. In his tights. Tight. That's good, isn't it? I love that one. That, that's the first time I've ever heard of that. So can you also give us a little bit of your uh, 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 highlights from your sports uh, uh, photography career? I would imagine you're probably like doing a lot of photography during the Rudy Tomjanovich era or, you know, yes. you know, maybe in, in that range. That's just from I'm I'm probably the bigger basketball fan out of the the, the, the group here. I'm, I'm a big Warriors fan. But but uh, uh, tell us a little bit about your sports photography. Well, um you know, the first three subjects that I photographed, um, starting with wrestling, were sports or sports related. I did pro wrestling, and then I did a lot of rodeo and stock shows together. But there's a lot of rodeo photography I did, and then high school football. So those three, uh, which I did through the 1970s, kind of gave me a reputation as being of being a sort of a a sports photographer of a slightly different perspective, you know. Um, then I went on to do um, a variety of things, but when I started doing a book about Houston, as the city approached its 150th anniversary, I photographed the Oilers, I photographed the Rockets, I photographed the Astros, and you know, I love all those sports, so the fact that I was able to get access for them since I was doing my book, you know, I probably photographed 20 Astros games, <laughs> probably 10 or 15 Oilers games, and, and a lot of the Rockets. So uh, I never, you know, they're the opposite there of what I had with wrestling. There was Bosch saying, do whatever you want, and I'll help you. I'll help you do whatever you want to do, okay? With those big franchises, you know, you're up against a bureaucracy, you know, first of all, they don't really want to let you in unless you're with um, the newspaper or Sports Illustrated. So you got to fight to get a press pass. And if you get a press pass, then uh, you probably don't have the privileges of the uh, um, the big organizations. You're kind of on the fringe. But also, you can be severely limited in what you can do with the pictures. You know, I came very close to being sued by the Astros excuse me, by the Rockets, after they invited me to come and make photographs and said, you know, if you will make some photographs of, of Rockets basketball for our annual auction and donate them, then we'll give you passes to as many games as you want to come to, and you can do whatever you want with the negatives and the prints after that. So I did. I, I did some really terrific, I thought, wonderful photographs of of the Rockets. And as soon as they saw them, they called me and said, oh, you have to bring us your negatives and all your prints. We made a mistake. We own it all. <laughs> it said the game is copyrighted and you can't photograph it. So it cost me about $10,000 in legal fees uh, to ward them off. And it ended with threats that if I ever published them, they would come after me. So, you know, when you get into big time sports, you get into bureaucracy and you get into rights and you get into all that stuff that's really kind of tricky. Um, but I do, I do miss having um, 
a sport that I'm photographing that I'm very passionate. I mean, I love sports. Uh, I have a 23-year-old son. I have five children, but I have a 23-year-old son, my youngest child, and he's a performing musician. He plays the string bass. And he said to me less than a year ago, Dad, explain something to me. I said, what, Mac? He said, why do people want to watch sports? I thought, this is my son talking to me? <laughs> you know, like, you know. But he just, and, and I, he didn't get it. Um, he said, I understand why they want to play sports, but I don't understand why they want to watch it. So I went, you know, riffing off on the idea that, you know, sports is like theater, it's like film, it's performance art, except it's real. You know, it's a real contest. And when you put talented people into contests with each other, all sorts of human qualities emerge and are illustrated very graphically and sometimes very beautiful. And I just don't think it registered with him. But it registers with me. You know, there's nothing more exciting than a great basketball or boxing match or football game. I mean, so how to get off on that sports. And I love sports. I haven't um, photographed any sports in a while. I, I, probably just because I've gotten older and, you know, running with that crowd um, is a little bit more demanding than I might be up to these days. I don't know. I do more landscape than I do sports. I'm going to ask you guys a tough question, Jeff and Mike. One day we're all going to be gone. What's the one photo you would want to be seen, you know, with your obit or whatnot that you're proudest of? Mike, you go first. Uh, I, mean, I want to say this to, to Russ. Actually, Russ, I've shot, I've shot every San Francisco Giants and Warriors victory parade and then tons of games leading up. So I'm, I was there, too. Why didn't I see you? There were only one and a half million people there. Yes. <laughs> but I, the, actually, the first uh, major league sports, my grandfather took me. Uh, we were right behind home plate, Dodgers versus Giants. And I got to shoot, like, everybody. Mays, Sandy Koufax, Don Drysdale, all of my... Uh, heroes, and uh, I think wasn't it the the Astros who stole our uh, our great pitcher in the seventies? I I'm just kidding. He was either from the Angels, Nolan Ryan. Didn't the uh, the Astros take him from California? I, I was upset about that at the time, but always for some reason I loved the Astros and the uh, the venue that Bill Watts would actually use for pro wrestling, uh, the uh, Astrodome. Um, for my photo, it'd be wrestling. I mean, Jeff may have, he shot so many other things in animals. Um, I was probably my best photo other than of Tolis and Blassie, just double juice, you know, both bleeding and just tearing apart each other would be my shot from one of my favorite, favorite venues of all time. The, the Chicago amphitheater 75, I think it was either 75 or 77 when, Bruiser and Crusher took the straps from uh, Ray Stevens, Nick Bockwinkel, and Bobby Heenan as their manager. I got a shot right before the match started, and Heenan went in the center, and he, had, he brought in Ray and Nick. They have the AWA World tag straps on. They're looking right at me. It's one of the best photos I ever took, probably um, the best representative for my work. So I'd probably have that on my tombstone, that, a photo like that, or maybe... The Sheik against uh, John Tolis, another great one. 
Mike, you know what picture of you as I always remember? You in the middle of the valiants. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I am brothers. Oh, wow. Yeah. You took one of me um, when I was being interviewed, when I was in the ring interviewing both Vinny and uh, uh, Mark Smith as Super Destroyer 2000. And it's one of the ones that's my favorite, too. So you've taken one of my favorite photos. Thank you. And what about you, Jeff? Well, I think I would have to go with the cover, the picture that's the cover of my book on wrestling. Yeah. Uh, Russ, can you bring that up? It's uh, it's the one of Johnny Valentine's on the left. It's just an amazing photo, too. And this is one that tells the whole story of the match. You know what happened. You know Valentine was victorious. You know uh, Bronco Lubitsch probably went down in flames if it was a tag match, teaming with uh, uh, Chris Markoff, very underrated, great, great talent who played a number of roles. Uh, and uh, and then Homer Odell is on the far right. I don't know if uh, he'll, he's brought up some, some of the photos uh, that I sent him as we did on, on COVID. I'm just saying a blank screen. Oh, let me go back to... So it's either the, the book's... He used it as the book's cover. I sent it to you as a single shot. Yeah, no, I'm trying, maybe it's technical difficulties. I'm trying to... Well, we'll to... get... Because we probably should let uh, Jeff go when he... Uh, uh, in, in a second. But Jeff, actually... Uh, and then you guys can... Close well, out. we're almost at the end of the hour, so I just wanted to make sure that Jeff had a chance to promote his book fully and any websites, any projects that are coming up for him, anything along those lines, um, Jeff. Three versions of, of the reissue of the book, better than it was originally. I don't know how you could top it, but he also has all of his other uh, photographic, etc. books that are you really want to check out if you want to see a master of his craft. So, Jeff, take it away. Well, you know, the... Um the difference with this book is that uh, essentially I published it myself. I established my own little publishing house and did it. And, and I was gambling on the idea that I could sell enough by doing things like this to get the book around. And, you know, it is doing well. I printed, uh, I, I, I opted for 500 copies, but I got 550. So, and I'm down to about uh, just under 300 now. That's really good for me in terms of, the book coming out in February, and, you know, here we are in September, and, you know, I'm well around a third of the books have sold, so that's good, but I sell it only, only on my website, um, and I pay the shipping, and I fill the orders the same day, so you order a book two, maximum three days later, you've got it, it's uh, $75, it's a very small edition of the book of, as I said, 550 uh, I do have a uh, kind of a deluxe edition of the book, which is really aimed at kind of photo collectors. You know, my individual prints from that time, which I made in the darkroom, uh, in the world of photo collectors are considered vintage prints. Um, so those prints uh, sell for $2,500 and up. There are not many of them, and I don't sell a lot of them, but that's what I get for them. So I went back and... Um, made 50 8 by 10 darkroom prints. They're really beautiful prints. And um, tip them into uh, 50 copies, hardcover with a slipcase uh, of the book. So that special edition is 600 bucks. Uh, but for someone who um, wants one of my original prints, uh, you know, I've sold, uh, I think I've sold 18 of them so far. So they're 
moving along. Um, but the $75 book is every bit as beautifully printed. Um, and uh, as I said, I ship them out the same day. So I hope maybe somebody decides to go to jeffwinningham.com and, and order one. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, what information can can the fans have to get a hold of your book and to check out your website? So it's Jeff, G-E-O-F-F, Winningham, with two N's, dot com, correct? Right, yes. Great. Yeah, no, we, I certainly love for the fans to, to, uh, to check that out. And since uh, Evan is working on a book that's, you know, maybe going to get published hopefully soon, and Mike is working on a book... What advice do you have for both of those guys so they can get off their duffs and get this thing, get those things public? Well, my first question is, are you going to try to distribute them yourself or are you going to try to find a publisher? I'm going to um, self-publish. Yeah. But Evan has, done, Evan has done a couple of books already, including one on his father, who was a world-famous uh, cab driver in New York City. And, uh, you know, it talks about his, his growing up, his childhood and everything, too. So Evan's done at least two, possibly more books. Mine is or the most recent one, Abdul the Butcher, a really famous roster who sadly wasn't in Houston uh, during your time photographing there, has asked me to co-write his book with him. So I'm going to let him shop it, but I think he has a deal with ECW Press already. Yeah. You know, there's another option. It doesn't often make sense, but sometimes it does. Um I'm putting. I'm just finished putting together a book uh, for a very limited audience um, uh, that I'm going to print 20 copies of with uh, Blurb, the online book publisher, book printer, and it's very expensive per copy. But it's a way to kind of test the market. Uh, this will be a eight by ten inch book, hardcover, 106 pages, very beautiful printing. The Blurb printing is beautiful. And these books cost like 40 bucks a piece, which is a ton of money. But, you know, you can print 50. So 50 times $2,000, okay? And if you can sell that book for 75, you can make some money. It's a way of kind of testing the market, too. Um, it doesn't make sense if you've got a book that you're sure you can sell a couple of hundred copies of. Then you go and you you know, you, you, you offset print it um, and you print 500 copies um, and the potential. This will be the wrestling book. My second edition will be really only the second book out of my 14 that I've ever really made any money on. This book will continue to sell. It may not sell out within the next year, but I think within a year or two or three it will. And I will make money on it. I, you know, I paid uh, almost fifteen grand to print it. Uh, the biggest expense there was getting the um, the black and white um, separations. Having when you see the book, it's really beautifully printed. And I paid a guy five grand just to do the tritone separations to make that printing perfect. Um, so you know, I will. Uh, I should. I should, in the end, make some money on this, hopefully, it sells out, and um, only because I'm doing it myself. And remember, too, you said uh, that you, as you did with the first book, that had a different publisher, but this time you're doing it yourself, with the highest quality paper, 
that's another thing. A lot of books, photographic books, sometimes the photos aren't crystal clear, but yours is different because that's your living and your expertise. Yeah, so good luck with both of your projects. I mean, uh, I, I I love um, I, I love the whole deal about putting a book together, printing the book, designing the book. I even got challenged by the selling of the book. Uh, and and these uh, blogs and things, you know, what'll happen is I'll go on the radio like I did with Mike before. I go on or you go on the radio. You do your blog, and within two days, my sales just go spiking. Now, you know, to me, a spike in sales is is 20 books in 10 days. But that'll happen because of the interviews or because of the talk. Um, the first interview I did, Mike, do you remember the name of the guy we talked about him before, uh, who also has a wrestling blog? Oh, you uh, mean the, the guy uh, Slam Wrestling? Yes. Yeah. Uh, I got a, I think I sold like, I don't know, 40 books in the two weeks after... Uh, and you know, to me, that's a bunch of sales. I don't, I don't need to sell a thousand books. I haven't got a thousand of them to sell. <laughs> right, right, right. You know. Well, we hope that some of our listeners do pick up your book and uh, uh, give you a, uh, a shot in the arm with sales. And, and we really appreciate having you here for uh, this week. We're the hours up, so really appreciate your uh, time. Thank you so much for coming. Um, Mike, thank you so much for arranging you, this uh, interview. And that's uh, jeffwinningham.com, too. And before I let him go, uh, Jeff Evan was the co executive producer on the Mickey Rourke. Uh, it was nominated for a slew of Academy Awards, including Best Actor for Mickey Rourke, the movie The, the Wrestler. Oh, so we should have you back on talk about that. Talk about that. Yeah, you could interview. Uh, you could interview Evan for us. So, associate producer, the executive producer is the money guy. Yeah. I was the wrestling guy. He yeah. was the wrestling guy. So, That's anyway, a- we really appreciate you've been a fascinating guest. We really would love to have you on in the future and yeah. uh, keep us informed of your upcoming projects and everything. Well, okay. Thank All you, right. guys. Thank you so much. Thank you. See everybody next week, or see see you fans next week. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Okay.